So glad you're here. And uh, as we begin as a new congregation in the city of Beaverton, it's kind of a big deal, yeah. right? It's like it's kind of a big deal. It's no joke that the church begins. Uh, any, any church, particularly in Portland, on the west side of Portland, this is not soil known to be particularly fruitful for planting churches. Um, and yet at the same time, we believe that the church is designed to multiply. That's actually what God calls the church to do. It's actually a healthy thing. And so when, so it's a big deal. It's a big deal because on one hand, there is an enemy that actually is opposed to this work, which means that there's a giant target on us, right? Uh, that, is, that is a big deal. And yet, on the other hand, it's not a big deal at all because we're just doing what hundreds of millions of followers of Jesus are doing around the globe today and have done for 2,000 years. We're just doing what's natural for the body of Christ to organically multiply and gather and scatter and be the church. So on one hand, it's a big deal. On the other hand, it's not a big deal at all. Um, And so grab this moment, take a picture in your head, remember who's around, thank God, and uh, let's let's do this thing, okay? Um, Which actually isn't hard because it actually is just being true to who we are as Christ's body. Um, if you have somehow uh, been a part of our vision nights over the summer in June, July, and August, uh, I'm glad to have you here. Uh, if you missed any of that and I haven't had a chance to connect with you, I'd love to meet you, I'd love to get to know you, have a cup of coffee or something, uh, and get to talk a little bit more about kind of who we are as Colossae and Colossae Beaverton in particular. Uh, if you are looking to make a significant connection, there's no better way that my wife and I have found to connect with other followers of Jesus than to serve alongside other followers of Jesus. So uh, at the back of this building, or the front, depending on if you, where you're sitting, uh, there's a table uh, with a TV screen on it, and uh, we, we will, from here on out, call that the community wall. They'll maybe be assigned next week. And... Uh, <laughs> And so if you are interested in connecting, you can see what community groups are around you geographically, and you can also let us know what serving team you might be interested in helping out with. It's a great way to make meaningful relationships. Uh, You can also sign up for our newsletter there, too. So great way to make connection. Well, we're beginning a new series today. Uh, As Colossae, as an entire church, and every one of the congregations, Hillsborough, Sherwood, Tigard, and now Beaverton, we're all going to begin the book of Acts today. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Acts chapter 1. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. We'll have it up on the screen. And uh, the reason we are looking at the book of Acts is not necessarily just because we're starting as a new congregation and we think, well, where should we start at the beginning of the church? We actually think as an entire church body, it's helpful to go back to our roots. To go backward is actually the best way to go forward. It's to look again at who we've always been as the church in order to have wisdom and being who we are called to be as the church today. And so we're going to go back, we're going to read through Acts, and we're going to be surprised not to find any prescriptions of one particular model. In fact, what we find is a narrative of a very messy community where they don't get it right, but the Spirit leads and the church multiplies, and they honor Jesus, and they figure things out, which sounds an awful lot like what our next few months and year are going to look like. We're going to follow the Spirit and love Jesus and love each other, and we're going to figure things out as we go. And so uh, Acts is not necessarily a formula, but it is a description of what God has done. And today I want to show you just four foundational realities in the book of Acts, chapter 1, 
We're going to see the essence of Christianity. We're going to see the mission and the hope and finally the shape of Christianity in community. So um, take a look with me, Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Let's get right into it. In the first book, O Theophilus, this is Luke writing to his friend named Theophilus. He says, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Uh, as we listen to God's word, let's, let's pray and invite him to lead this next moment. Father, we receive your word. We receive your word gladly. Uh, and we ask that as a congregation, we would be deeply and pervasively shaped by what you have revealed and what you speak in your scriptures. We invite you to lead us by your spirit as a new congregation for your glory in this city. And we pray that we would acknowledge you in this moment, acknowledge your spirit, that you'd talk to each one of us about the things you want to show us through the scriptures, that we would be wise to salvation, that we'd be equipped for every good work in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Acts is written by a guy named Luke to a friend. It's a two-volume work, and Acts is volume two of the two-volume work. The volume one is Luke, the gospel of Luke, right? And so he says, in my first book, right, the volume one, I described everything that Jesus began to do and to teach. And so he's going back and he's telling them what uh, Jesus has been up to. And now volume two is what Jesus is still up to, okay? That's really what is going on. So the volume one, everything that Jesus began to do and teach. Volume two, everything that Jesus continues to do and teach through the Spirit in the church. That's the story. And so that's what we're going to see as we explore the book of Acts. And there's a lot of ancient books where the author doesn't actually give you any explicit reason for their writing. They just drop little literary clues along the way. Well, Luke is very explicit. He says in volume one that he set out to write an orderly account that he wanted to put all the eyewitness testimony together in an orderly account so that his friend Theophilus could be certain of what had been fulfilled among them. That's what he's doing. So he's saying this whole two-volume work is so that you would be certain of the significance of what just got accomplished or fulfilled in our midst through Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified and now risen and ascended and has sent his spirit. And so he's like, I want you to know what that's all about. Something has happened. Now, he describes what Jesus was up to for 40 days between his resurrection and his what's called the ascension, when Jesus went to be with the Father that he was not only resurrected physically, but then physically his body like went to be in God's space, heaven, right? And so he presented himself, Jesus, alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So Jesus' primary focus as he has a conversation with his followers is the kingdom of God. That's the full story that the Bible's been telling up to the point of his life and death and resurrection and his ongoing reign and rule in the world. 
And he says it was really important that they understood that he was alive after he suffered. Here's what Luke is doing for us in the first three verses of Acts chapter 1. He's showing us the essence of Christianity, the very essence. When he says that when you boil it down, here's what it's about. Now, there's plenty of confusion for us about what Christianity is or isn't in our world. In the 20th century, there were plenty of people who would have defined the essence of Christianity as doing good. It was our activism in the world, right? It was the stuff we did for social good. That would be the liberal side of Christianity in the 20th century. And there was a reaction as well from the conservative side, the fundamentalist side, that would have said it's actually about what you agree with, the doctrine, right? And what, what we're getting here in the 21st century, in our cultural moment, is that there's usually two reactions to Christianity. One, that it's something to be rejected because it's a moral straitjacket for you, right? Or that it's something to be used as a way of self-actualization, right? It's something that serves the self. It either you reject it because it controls yourself or you use it because it serves yourself, right? But the self is the center of our definition of Christianity in a lot of modern circles. And so what Luke is saying is none of these actually work. Right? It's not about what we do. It's not even about what you agree to per se, nor is it actually about you. He says the entire essence of Christianity is about what Jesus did. It's about Jesus, and it's about what Jesus did, what he accomplished, what was fulfilled in his death and his resurrection and his ascension. And so he's distilling down for us what the essence of Christianity is. It is what Jesus did. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15 when he talks about what was passed on as of first importance to him. He says in 1 Corinthians 15 that what was passed on as of first importance, the essence, was that Christ died according to the Scriptures, was buried, and was raised according to the Scriptures. And then he appeared to Peter first, and then to all the apostles, and then to about 500 of us, is what he says. So what Jesus has done is the essence of what Christianity has always been about. And this is critical for us, because if we see Christianity as primarily a moral upgrade to your life, I'm telling you today that that's bad news, that Jesus is merely a burden to you, that if you look at Jesus and you see his program as actually about upgrading your morality, he's just going to be a burden. You won't be able to do it. You'll be constantly frustrated, and it will be ultimately about your will, and it will create anxiety in your life. What Luke is saying is it's actually not about that at all. It is about what he's done, and what he's done has a ripple effect that will affect our behavior, but it's not primarily targeted at our behavior. That's something Jesus has done. Luke makes an emphatic point that what is significant is that he's alive after his suffering, that his suffering accomplished something. This seems weird to us, right? The goal of most modern existence is to numb or get away from suffering, It's hard to believe that the crucifixion of a man as a criminal who was deemed innocent was somehow what accomplished our salvation. But this is what Luke is saying. He's saying, look, it's what he suffered that accomplished something. The author of Hebrews uses the same word for suffering in Hebrews 2.9 when he says, but we see him who for a little while, this Jesus, was made lower than the angels. That's right. The exalted son of God is humbled, right? He becomes human. And then he says that he was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. 
so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So what the author of Hebrews is saying is that suffering of Jesus was on behalf of us. That it was the grace of God that made provision for Jesus to suffer something that we ought to have suffered. And so this suffering wasn't inconsequential. It was actually the grace of God. And so his suffering actually is what redeems humanity. That when humans step out on trusting what God designs as good and try to define good for themselves, death is the result. And Jesus has absorbed that that death. He's absorbed that consequence into himself. And so the essence of Christianity is what Jesus has done for us in the world. And some of the ways we get confused is revealed when we talk about whether or not we're a good Christian or a bad Christian. Uh, You know, I... As an awkward person, I get to introduce myself and they want to know, what do you do? I'm pastor. Oh, I'm not a very good Christian. I get that one at checkout stands every once in a while. I'm not a very... Okay, well, I don't know that you understand what it means to be a Christian, right? How do you define that? Well, I haven't been going to church or I haven't been reading my Bible very much. And so, right? So what happens is people start to define the essence of Christianity based on their own performance and their own behavior, don't they? I'm not good because what are they listing? They're listing off their, their behaviors, The essence is actually that Jesus has done something for you, and it's irreversible and it's total, right? That he's brought the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy of God into your life, and he's covered you, and he said, you belong, and you're accepted, and it has nothing to do with what you do, what you did or what you will do. It has to do with what Jesus has done for you. And so the only response is, I am a grateful Christian, and I don't deserve to be one. But Jesus has reached into darkness in my life and pulled me into his light and made me light. And so that's the reality of the gospel. That's the essence of Christianity. It is what Jesus has done for you. But I love what Luke says. He says, in volume one, I talked about what Jesus began to do, which means that Jesus isn't done doing what he was doing. He's continuing. He has a mission, and it's not done yet. What he did finally and fully in the cross and the resurrection is now being implemented. He's still working. He's applying that redemption across the globe in our lives. And so the next thing that Luke shows us is the mission of Christianity. The essence is what Jesus has done. The mission now is in verse 6. He says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, or to the end of the earth. There's this ripple effect. What Jesus does for you has a ripple effect in your life, and it moves you and orients you outward. And so what Jesus began, he continues now by the Spirit through the church. And that's what Luke is going to tell us in this story. And so Jesus says, and not many days from now, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. All the Jewish disciples are standing around listening to Jesus describe something that had been promised in the Old Testament, and they think, finally, now it's time for Israel to be returned to her former glory. And that's why they ask the question, okay, is it now that you're going to restore, that you're going to fix everything, that you're going to fulfill every promise? Is it now? And Jesus kind of blows right past their question. Like, no, 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 that's not what I'm asking you to focus on focus on this, right? It's like when my kids come to me and they're like, I have given them a task 
and they come up with 30 questions for other things that are 10 hours later. Like, no, 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 no. I just need you to put your shoes away. Like, that's what I, that's what, I, it's not for you to know the times or dates your father has assigned for you to get an ice cream, right? It's, it's time to put your shoes away, right? And that's what Jesus is doing, saying, don't worry about that right now. I've got that. The Father's got that. What I have for you is the Spirit who's going to come and he's going to give you power. And you're going to be my witnesses. And you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, right? And you're going to be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria, right? We're going to move past the social, religious boundaries of your confined headspace. And then we're going to go further. We're going to go to the ends of the earth. He's going to break the boundaries and he's going to move the people of God outward. And you see the disciples had this centripetal, there you go, big word for the day. It's not even a theological word. And it's, it, they had this idea that everything was going to move towards the center. Like the nations would come to Israel and Jesus is reversing that. It's centrifugal. Fugal? There you go. Not, not a scientist. Okay. Um, but he says it's outward momentum. momentum. It's an outward movement. I'm actually going to send you out. In a few weeks, we're going to see how the church, everybody looks at Acts chapter 2, and it's like, this is the ideal church. Everybody's gathering together and doing all this awesome stuff. And you're like, yeah, partly right. They were also disobedient to Jesus and staying in Jerusalem. And so what did he do? He brought suffering into their life, and they started moving, right? And so Acts 2 is not the ideal church. It's like, got some good principles, right? But it's still a church like us. We're a beautiful mess. It's not all perfect, and we're moving out in obedience as much as God is revealing. And so the same trajectory works for the church. It's not all about everybody just come to a building. What we do on Sundays is important, but what we do on Sundays is only one part. Actually, everything else that happens in your life the rest of the week in community and at work and in your neighborhood, like that's where the mission gets lived out. God says, moving you out. And so that's why we multiply as a church we said, we don't have a church in Beaverton as Colossae. We want to be who we are, where we are, so we multiply. And God willing, we'll multiply. We will be a part of multiplication again soon. I don't know when, right? But that's the way it works. And so we're oriented outwards, and it's this multiplication movement. And I'll just show you just an outline of where this is going to go. We see in Acts that the church foundation in the first two chapters but then the word of God increases and the people multiply. And then it moves into the next section where the, this Jerusalem community receives the word. But then it moves out. And then there's this expansion into Palestine. And then we see that the word of God multiplies. And then again, the Gentiles are included. And this is a world-changing reality for all these Jewish Christians. But the word continues to multiply. It goes out. And again, the, the mission goes to Asia. And then it goes out further into Europe. And then by the end of the book, in Acts chapter 28, we're now in Rome at the seat of world power. And it's effectively and symbolically the ends of the earth. And this all happens in about 30 to 40 years. It's pretty crazy. And so one of the things that I think is so fascinating about this passage is that Jesus doesn't command people to be witnesses. He just says, you will be my witnesses. A command is something that you, you tell somebody to do. Jesus uses an indicative, which means I'm describing what you are. He doesn't say, go be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. By nature of your connection to me, by nature of my spirit in you, I've decreed that you are a witness. And so from here on out, that's your identity. 
what we get to evaluate is the sliding scale of accuracy, right? We can be an accurate witness or we can be an inaccurate witness. That's what we're dealing with. The identity is witness. He says, I put my spirit in you. You're my witness. You're connected to me. You've experienced my grace. You can bear witness to that grace in your life. And so um, it's interesting, right, where, you know, as an anxious person who cares deeply about what other people think of you, you're going to end up being an inaccurate witness, right? Because you're ultimately lying, right? By caring deeply about whether or not somebody accepts you. What are you, what are you lying about? You're lying about the magnitude of a God who already accepts you, right? That actually is enough to be non-anxious about what other, what other people think about you, right? Or to go on further, right? I'm, I'm lying if I refuse to be generous even though I feel like I'm in a season of scarcity, an accurate witness goes, actually, God gave everything to me. He gave himself. He became poor so that I might become rich. I can be a generous person in the midst of not having control over everything, right? You see how our lives bear witness either accurately or inaccurately. And so what Jesus began, he says he's going to continue through his people who are witnesses, and they will actually keep on doing what uh, he's been up to. Verse 9, when they had said these things, they were looking on, the disciples, when Jesus, I love this, like just one verse, one little line describes something pretty magnificent. When, they, when he had said these things, they were looking on, and he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Move the narrative forward. Like, wait, that constitutes at least a three-hour movie, I feel like. <laughs> but this is one line for Luke. He right? says, well, Jesus was lifted up. He's gone. He's in the cloud. Like, he disappeared. He's with, he's with the Father, out of sight. To anyone who would have been familiar with the Old Testament story up to this point, the readers of Acts would be cluing in on another former story. See, Luke puts the promise of the Spirit and the ascension of Jesus right next to each other on purpose. Because there's this other story in 2 Kings chapter 2 where the prophet Elijah is about to be taken... And he's like one of the other, there's like two dudes who seem to not have to die and get buried, right? There's the old guy, Methuselah, right? No, Enoch, sorry. Genesis. I've been in Acts all week, right? Who walks with God and then he was like taken up. And then there's this guy, Elijah, right? Elijah's this prophet in Israel and he's got his protege, Elisha. And Elisha goes, oh, when, you know, I'll do whatever you want. Would you just give me a double portion of your spirit? What he's saying is essentially like that he's referencing the birthright situation in ancient Israel. And he's saying, like, would you give me your inheritance, essentially? Let me inherit what your ministry is. Right? And so when uh, Elijah is about to go, a chariot picks him up or something, and he disappears. He ascends, just like Jesus. And then the spirit falls on Elisha, and Elisha continues Elijah's ministry. And this is this illusion that Luke is making so that we understand that when Jesus is gone and his spirit comes, we pick up his mantle. See, Elijah's cloak fell out of the sky and lands on Elisha, right? It's a symbolic way of saying, you pick up the mantle, you pick up Elijah's ministry. And now in the same way, Jesus is saying, I'm ascended, you pick up my mantle. You do the stuff I would do if I were you. That's what he's saying. That's what it means to be an empowered witness. We continue the work, the redemptive kingdom unveiling work of Jesus. And we do this together. That's our identity. You're looking at me like that. I'm crazy. 
This is for reals from the Bible, all right? I didn't make it up. Jesus says, I'm passing on the baton. I give you my spirit. I'm not giving you a job you can't do. I'm giving you a job I've equipped you to do by nature of the spirit. So you get to go do the stuff I would do if I were you. How cool is that? This is our mission. Well, Jesus, uh, Luke also shows us our hope. Because it's one thing to set out eagerly and say, I'm going to unveil the kingdom. But our world is hard. And life is hard. And it's easy to give up. And so what we see next is that after these things happen, they look on. Jesus is ascended. They're gazing into heaven. Verse 10. Uh, and as he went, and behold, two men stood by them in white robes, right? Presumably angels. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. There's two things I want to point out, and I want to move through this point quickly, and that's this. That when Jesus is ascended, it's hope. Because uh, I've said this over the years. I think this is so interesting that Jesus thinks we're better off without him, right? But he does. Because when he's gone, right, access to him is now increased. Right? Before he had access to him wherever he was physically. But now he's ascended. He's in this God's dimension. Right? And he says, you have access to me anywhere, anytime, by my spirit. I'm present by my spirit because I'm ascended. So it's a good thing. right? And so we don't go on with his mission without his presence. He says, you have my presence My presence goes before you. I'm with you always is what he promises in Matthew. The other thing about his ascension is that it reminds us of a passage in Daniel where this figure called the Son of Man, a title Jesus used for himself all the time, is elevated to the status of God, right? That he shares the throne of Yahweh after he's wrestled these beasts of empire and he's suffered and now he's exalted. And so when Jesus is ascended, it's an image that Luke wants us to see that he's actually ruling. You're going to get discouraged if you think that the world powers are actually in charge, whether it's your boss or if it's a national issue. It doesn't matter. If you look out at the world and you think, I think all these CEOs and this, this corporation or this president or this king or what, if you think that person's actually in charge, you'll get discouraged. The ascension tells you they're actually not in charge. Jesus is. He's on the throne. Nothing that happens is outside of his purview, and he's with you. But he's not just with you. He's coming back. I think you can do pretty much anything and endure pretty much anything when you know in the end it's going to be made right. And it's, we, we give up when we think that, I don't know that this is ever going to get made right. That's when you, that's when you give up, right? You, you give up hope. But the disciples who are standing there and they say, Jesus ascended, what, what do they get? They get news that he's coming back the same way. That at the end of the day, he's going to come back and he's going to right every wrong. That his rule will come back. His rule is spiritual now, but his rule will one day be fully physical. Right? And so he's going to come back in glory and in power. And so this gives hope for the disciples to move forward with the mission in spite of pushback, in spite of challenge, in spite of mess, because they know that everything they do is not in vain. We read this, week, this verse last week in Tigard as we looked at being sent out. We said that Paul says at the end of his discussion on the resurrection of Jesus that your labor in the Lord is not in vain right? because he's going to return. The next thing and the last thing I want to show you in this passage is 
the essence of Christianity is what Jesus has done for you. The mission is what he continues to do by the Spirit through you. The hope is what he will do. Another shape is, again, what the disciples do in response to all this. Right? We're shaped as, as response. Uh, the shape of Christianity is always a response to what Jesus has done. I'm going to summarize this bit, but after Jesus ascends, they return to Jerusalem, and they go back to this upper room where they'd been hanging out. It was a familiar place to them. All 11, because remember, Judas is dead. All 11 of the apostles are together, and so are a bunch of the women and the men. And it says this in verse 14, that they devoted themselves, sorry, all of those were of one accord, and they devoted themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary and the mother of Jesus and his brothers. It's a family moment, right? Men, women, the full community who had been adhering to Jesus is now gathered together, and they share in this devotion to prayer together and waiting, and they're around each other. And then Peter stands up and he goes, we're missing one of the guys, committed suicide, we're bummed about that, but we've got to fill his place, right? And so he gives us a little sermonette based on Psalm 109. He reads the scriptures and thinks, I think somebody's got to fulfill this guy's place. So we have full 12 apostles. It's a symbolic number that represents the fullness of Israel, right? The people of God. And he's saying, we got to have 12. 12 of us who saw Jesus from the first all the way through his death and resurrection and ascension. Somebody who can give eyewitness credible testimony. We got to have somebody fill that role. So they look around and they go, who fits the qualifications for that? They pray. Then they roll some dice. And the dice falls on this guy named Matthias. Like, bummer for Joseph. But, or, or maybe relief to Joseph. I don't know. Maybe he's like, oh, man, I dodged that one. I don't know. But, uh, so, you know, moving forward at Colossae, we're just going to select elders by roll of dice. And, like, <laughs> we won't, right? But, but there's something about what they're doing here. They're, they're, they're devoting themselves to prayer, right, first of all. They're finding unity and their communion with God. The deepest, most important aspect of their relationship together, the substance of the relationship, is their common communion with Christ. That's the shape of Christianity. We respond to what he's done by being bound together around the substance of what he's done in our life. We have a common communion. But then they, they also interpret their present through the lens of the scriptures. Peter stands up, and he's looking at their present moment, and he's making sense of it according to what God's already revealed. We do the same thing, right? The, the substance of our relationship is our communion with Christ, and we move forward making sense of our present through the lens of what God has already revealed. And then they say, we got to have some qualified leaders. we got to have some leaders for this thing, and then they trust God, right? They go, I think he meets the qualifications. Let's trust God in his sovereignty. He's going to raise up the people that we need to move the mission forward. And so that's the first bit of Luke. It's chapter one and one message for you. And here's what I'm going to encourage you with this morning. That the result of what God has done leads us to this humble, patient, prayerful posture. Whereas a church, we're going to move forward in a prayerful attentiveness to the will of Jesus. We're going to make sense of our, our everyday lives through the lens of what Jesus has already revealed in his word. We're going to find the substance of our relationship is Christ between us. Right? It's not the common interests. It's not, those things are all fun. But what really binds us together and actually enables us to reconcile through differences and push through the mess of community 
This is the common communion we share with Christ, and we're going to move forward and trust that the Spirit's moving. One of the best ways for us to move forward and trust, to live in the tension between memory of what Christ has done and hope of what he will do, is to come to the tables and celebrate. I'm going to invite Elise and the band to come up, and we're going to celebrate what Jesus has done. The essence of Christianity is what he's done for us. And so we're going to celebrate that, and we're going to nourish that memory, and we're going to nourish that hope around the bread and the cup, the bread that represents the body of Christ given for us and the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of sin. And as we do, we, we nourish the reality that we come together and the substance of our relationship is what we find together at the table. That brings us together and it sends us out. And so let me pray for us and invite you to come forward during these next couple songs to take the bread and the cup pray together around the room. Uh, I'm going to invite you as well. If, if there's something in your life that you would just like prayer for, I'm going to have a couple people just in the back of the room available, available to pray with you. We're going to be a people who lives into this acts reality of a people who are attentive in prayer, pushing into the substance of our relationship, which, which is our communion with Christ. Let's pray.